Just real quick so we can introduce ourselves. Like Bobby said, I'm Joey. Uh, I am actually from Birmingham, Alabama. Alabama. Um, spent some time in Missouri working full-time for Connecticut Camps before I uh, somehow, miraculously, by the Lord's will, ended up in Texas. Um, never thought I'd live here, but <laughs> now I'm here. I actually get the sweet pleasure of working with the connecting community team here. Uh, my role on staff is just to, to get people plugged in. And so I'm a very people person and love being with people. And so it's fun to get to be with y'all because this fills my cup. I hate being alone, to be honest. Um, my community group's like, hey, you need to be alone or else you're going to die. Um, so uh, that's who I am. I'm going to let Carrie tell you a little bit about herself as well. So I'm Carrie. And unlike Joey, I like to be alone. So this is <laughs> Perfect a match, right? great compliment. <laughs> Um, I have roots in Katy, Texas. I worked in student ministry for a few years before I moved to Dallas, and then the residency became an opportunity, and so I serve with the community team. So if you have any questions about community, community groups, conflict in community, um, come to me, and we'll chat. And uh, we're excited for this morning. If at any time you have a question or a comment, please speak up. We're excited about just our setup this morning and having a little bit smaller room for discussion. So please, if you have anything to ask or share, don't hesitate. Uh, We would love any kind of contribution that you would have for us. Uh, Just before I get started, I want, um, I'm going to move around a lot and I, tend to get going. So if you have a question at any point in time, please raise your hand because I will just keep flying and and not realize that we need to slow down or stop and address something. And if you have a question, we'd love to answer it. Um, If it's something that might take a long time, uh, go through your filter and say, is this for now or can we talk about this on the side? We'd love to answer your question. I just want to make sure that I get to your question and don't skip it. Um, And so obviously our question is Christ in the Old Testament. Just before we address all of it, I want to make sure that y'all don't feel like deceived or anything. This is not going to be a time where we look at specific passages and say, is this Jesus or not? Uh, I think that's a question that uh, even as we prepared going into this, is is that what y'all are going to talk about? Like an example being, um, did Jesus walk in the garden with Adam and Eve? Like we don't know that explicitly from scripture or um, the one we talked about this morning was just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like who was the fourth person in the fire? We don't know if that was Jesus. The the text is not clear. Um, There's speculation and assumption that that could be Jesus. Sure, but we don't have that answer. We don't. Um, we don't know. And so just for our time in, in here together, I want to make sure that we're not deceiving you to go, hey, Carrie and Joey have all the answers to who Jesus is in the Old Testament, but rather what typology truly is and just looking at the definition of how typology points to who Christ is in the New Testament. And so that's what our time is going to be spent doing in here. It's not, we're going to answer all these hard questions about who Jesus is and Revelation and Genesis and everywhere in between, but rather how does the Old Testament in its entirety, point to who Jesus is. And so just looking at the definition of typology, this is one of the best ones that that we found is just a person, an object, or an event in the Old Testament that creates a symbolic or or prophetic connection to the New Testament. And so what that is, is is just, it's a type that comes out of the text. And so what we want to see here today is how does the Old Testament point to the person of Christ and not just like this assumption that we know the Messiah is coming, but we're going to look specifically at different events and different people and different objects that point directly 
correctly of who Christ is. And we, we can't always say, hey, this is exactly what the text is. And I'm going to go through that, what an implicit uh, type is. But so often we have an explicit type that shows us exactly who Christ is going to be and where he is in the New Testament. And so as we look at typology, we're going to look at those three things today. We're going to look at five to six different people, places, and events or objects that show who Jesus is in the New Testament. And so as we look at it, we want to know why it's truly important, because if we just jump into typology and have no full grasp of what we're looking at, we have, we have to really see what we're going towards. And so as we look at typology, we understand the Old Testament to be a buildup to the revelation of who the Messiah is. And so it's not just, uh, some people talk about how the Old Testament's irrelevant because it doesn't pertain to us today. But in reality, the Old Testament pertains directly to us today because it's, it's a buildup to a culmination and manifestation of who Christ is on earth in the flesh. And so as we look at it, we're looking at the hope of Christ. And so as we look at different types, we're preparing to see who Jesus is. And so these different people and these different events and these different objects will point directly to who Jesus is, but we don't see him physically in person yet. And that's our hope. We're, we're going towards who Jesus is. Uh, a couple of things. We make a lot of mistakes when we look at types because we want to insert a type sometimes or we want to find a hidden or deeper meaning in the text and what's really there. So as we examine these different texts today, we have to look at the text and say, what is it saying? And then when we look at the text and see what it's saying, we have to, we have to rest there. We can't continue to prolong this conversation of, well, maybe it means this or it could mean this. That's, that's our own assertion and insertion of something that's not necessarily there. And so as we look at types, there's two different types that we'll look at today. And we have to make sure that we're not inserting something, but we're, we're taking out of what we see coming out of the text. So what I said earlier between explicit and implicit, the implicit is just, it's implied based off of the text. It's implied and we see that there. And then explicit is this, that it, it's clearly stated. We see it explicitly from the text. We see it, there's no questions asked. And so as we, we dive into these types, that's what we're going to see today, that we're going to see some implicit types and we're going to see explicit types, but we cannot allow ourselves to insert types, but we have to let them rise to the top of the text, let it come naturally out of the body. Um, here's an example for you, and I got to have y'all to interact. I need y'all to, to engage with me because people person that can't talk to all because it doesn't talk back. Um, how many of you, or not even how many, somebody tell me what fruit Adam and Eve ate of in the garden? Apple? What else? Any guess is good. Nothing? <laughs> I said, that's not a fruit. What? No, not at all. That's perfect. In, in Genesis 1 through 3, we never in the garden see a specified fruit, ever. And so as we look at types, we can't allow ourselves to go, Adam and Eve ate an apple. Now, an apple is not a type. The, the garden is not a type. We're not, we're not talking about that. But what we have to do in light of the scripture that we're going to view today, we have to understand we don't know if Adam and Eve ate of an apple. They took a bite out of some fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that caused our separation from God. That's what we know. We don't know what the fruit was. We just know that the fruit was important because it was a sign of disobedience that they took part in eating that fruit. That's what we know from the text. But... 
in reality, the fruit is irrelevant of what type of fruit it was. And so just put our lens of what types are in that way. And so the first thing I want to visit, gosh, I, I really think that this is one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. It's just is looking at Abraham and Isaac, who they are, what they, what they represent fully, and then the events that took place with them being involved. And so just to give you a little background, if you don't know much about Abraham and Isaac, Abraham is the father of the nations. He's chosen by God. He's called to go forward from his homeland to leave his family and to go towards the promised land, this land that God has in store for him. And we know that based off of Genesis 12 and, uh, and 12 and 15, God says, look, I will make you a great name. I will make you a great nation and then I will bless you. And to put that into similar terms, he just says, hey, the parts of this covenant I'm making with you are going to be land, seed and blessing." And so why is that important? Well, because we see Isaac on the scene as well. So we see in these chapters is Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the firstborn, but Isaac is the chosen and promised son. And so when we look at the text, we see that Isaac is of utmost importance because he is the one, based off of Genesis 21, who the descendants of Abraham will come through. Now, logically thinking, if we have land, seed, and blessing, you have to have offspring to which these things can come through. So if we have an offspring through these things who are going to come through, he needs to be alive and well. He has to. He has to reproduce himself in order for these things to happen. How, just shot in the dark, how do you think Abraham and Isaac are types? Anything. What do they represent? Father and son. That's good. Yeah. Jew and Gentile? Maybe, yeah. What else? There's no wrong, no wrong answer, I promise. Sacrifice? That's a really good, really good answer. Anything else? If you got your Bible, open up with me to Genesis 22. What's your name? Brent. Brent. That's a great answer. You know exactly where we're going. Um, Genesis 22 is when Abraham offers Isaac as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, this, this is going to paint an incredibly beautiful picture of who Abraham and Isaac are in light of who Christ is going to be uh, in the New Testament when we get to Matthew right after Malachi, after that 400 years of silence. So look at, look at Genesis 22 with me. In verse 2, it says, And he said, being God, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So God says, hey, I'm going to bless you. And you will have land, seed, and blessing through Isaac. We see that in Genesis 21. But now he says, hey, take your one and only son and go offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, or one of the mountains uh, of Moriah. So going down, Isaac carries the wood up the mountain. He himself carries the wood. We get to verse 7. He says, behold, the fire in the wood. Like, Dad, like we have these things, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? If I'm Isaac, I'm looking around. I'm like, Dad, we've got all the stuff, except we're missing a huge component. We, we have no sacrifice. Like, where are we going to get it? And Abraham's, Abraham's response is, I mean, it's just so simple. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering for my son. So the two of them walked on together. And so in this moment, I'm Isaac. Where are we going with this? God will provide. <laughs> what do you mean? Like, uh, are we just going to burn the wood or what are we doing? And so they get up to the top of the mountain. They build the altar. And at this point, everything gets real. 
It gets absolutely real because Abraham takes his one and only chosen son and places him on the wood. The one son who all these promises were to be fulfilled with, this land, the seed, and this blessing, and later we will see the seed and the blessing is crucial in who Christ is and who he is to come, and we're putting him on an altar to kill him, to sacrifice him as a burnt offering to the Lord. And so if you look at verse 11, he says this, but the angel of the Lord, now keep in mind, Abraham is literally like mid, it's, it's mercenary. We're about to kill Isaac right here on the spot. And he's mid swing. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham responds, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his, thorn, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. One quick pause. Can you imagine Abraham and Isaac coming home and, and Sarah's got food on the stove and th- this conversation ensues. And it's, hey, Abraham, like, glad you're back. Like, what'd you do today? And, well, I was going to sacrifice Isaac, but the Lord provided. And so we're good. Like, the promises will be fulfilled. And you can imagine Sarah's going, you had one job, and that was to protect our chosen son. And you yourself wanted to sacrifice him. And, and I say that, and I don't make to make too light of it, but... But we have to understand the monumental gravity of what was occurring there. So Abraham takes his one and only chosen promised son and and places him on an altar to die as an offering to the Lord. But in that moment, the Lord says, whoa, look here and take this ram that I provided and he will be a substitutionary sacrifice that we will spare Isaac's life. And so in this, we see that God, in a monumental way through the person of Christ, gives us a substitutionary sacrifice so that we can have life. And so in our minds, with Sarah, hey, you're going to take my one son and you're going to kill my son as an offering to the Lord. Why would we do that? Well, God says, hey, I'm giving you the ram. Offer him as an offering to me and worship So in that moment, they're going to give their one and only chosen son who the promises of God will be fulfilled from Genesis 15 for all of eternity, for all of mankind, for all of life. And he takes his one and only son and intercedes on our behalf because we are sinful and we are broken and says, here, take my son so that you may have life. And so as we look at the type of Christ that we see in Abraham and Isaac, it is this. They are a beautiful picture of Christ because in that moment, he gives him the ram, but in our sinful nature, God gives us Christ. So yeah, we look at the text and it doesn't explicitly say in Abraham and Isaac's defense, Christ came in, but in Abraham and Isaac's case, we provide the ram in the same way that the Lord provides Christ so that we can have life. So our first point for you today is Abraham and Isaac in the event that takes place shows who Christ is as our substitutionary sacrifice. We can have life because he died in our place. The, the penalty that we owed 
the death that we deserve, we were substituted by Christ. And so as we look at the rest of these events and the rest of these people, I want you to remember these key terms, these key phrases. The first and foremost being that Christ substituted our death with his own so that we could live. And so now Carrie's going to come up and talk about what the propitiation and atonement of Christ looks like. Awesome. Great. So when I say the word Passover, what comes to mind? Just shoot off some words. I say Passover, what comes to mind? A lamb? Blood? What else? Sorry? The Egyptians? Sorry? A door. I thought you said a door as in I adore you. And I thought this is going to get weird. Um, awesome. So when I was probably in maybe junior high-ish years, I remember this word Passover simply meaning in my mind, bread, wine, dinner with a bunch of dudes for many, many hours. That's all I associated with this word Passover. I had no other ideas, no other thoughts. I thought it was one meal, bread and wine, bunch of men, that's it. Clearly, Passover has much more to it than just bread and wine and men sitting around a dinner table for many, many hours. So if you will, turn with me to Exodus 12. And so what's going on in this part of the text? So far... Um, all of these plagues have been happening in Egypt. God is demonstrating his sovereignty, his authority. He's showing, hey, this is who I am. And hey, I'm executing judgment on these Egyptian people. And so we see these first nine plagues come. They bring destruction. They bring pain. They bring torment. And all of a sudden, there's this warning of a final plague. And that final plague is what is known to us as the killing of the firstborn son. And what is so unique about it being the firstborn son? Because once again, as Joey mentioned, the lineage is preserved through the firstborn son. When you take away the firstborn son, that family line doesn't really exist anymore. That's how they measure the generations to come. So that firstborn son is very important. And so they receive this warning that these sons are going to die, but God in his graciousness and in his mercy gives Moses instructions on what to do. He says, I have a plan for you. Okay. So let's look at Exodus 12. Let's, let's see some of the instructions that uh, God gives. And so one of the very first things that stands out to me in verse three is to take a lamb a lamb for each household. And then if we scroll down to verse five, it says, make sure this lamb is without blemish, a male, um, take it from your sheep or from your goats, and so on and so forth. So the very first thing that we want to look at is this lamb. And there's many, many instructions in this text that we just don't have time to look at today, but we want to focus on the lamb right now. Because he says, take the lamb, a male without blemish, and you're going to sacrifice it. Okay, and so you're going to kill it. And then what I want you to do is I want you to take the blood of that lamb and you put it on your doorpost. Not on the threshold that you would walk over, but on the doorpost 
in a very specific instructions. He also says to roast the lamb to cook it. And this is very important and unique because when you roast a lamb over an open fire, you don't break the body at all. You don't break bones. You don't tear it apart. It remains intact. It remains whole and it remains identifiable as an animal. They know what kind of meat it is. It has credibility. And so we're given these instructions, and he says, okay, so when the angel of the Lord comes through that night, he sees the blood, and he will pass over. What on earth? So the blood is a propitiation. The blood on the doorpost satisfies the angel enough to where he says, okay, that house, covered. That house, safe. That firstborn son, good. Moving on. And so when we look forward to Christ, someone, real quick, I have a few verses. Someone turn to John one twenty nine. Who's got it? Someone, anyone? Test. John one twenty nine. First Peter one nineteen. Someone turn there for me. Kim. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Someone turn there for me. Molly. Y'all look those up real quick. Tess, you got one? Okay, wait. Speak really loud. So in John 1.29, John, the apostle says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is the first moment in the Gospels that we see Jesus Christ himself being called the Lamb of God. Okay, next. 1 Peter 1.19. All right, 1 Peter 1.19, the lamb without blemish, blemish and without defect. We know that Jesus Christ was without sin. He was fully God and fully man, but he was without sin. He was without error, without problem. And finally, 1 Corinthians 5.7. And there it is. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb sacrificed for us. So let's connect this picture a little bit more. The Israelites were told, take a lamb without blemish. Here's Jesus Christ, our lamb without blemish. They said, take a male. Clearly Jesus is male. No broken bones. Remember, roasted over an open fire. If we remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, They did not break a bone on his body. Rather, they pierced him in the side to make sure that he was dead. And finally, the blood on the doorpost. We see this picture of the blood on the cross. And when God sees that blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, that is our propitiation or our atonement. That is our covering. He says that blood, that blood of Jesus Christ satisfies me. That satisfies God enough to say, I will pass over you. You who deserve judgment, you who I said would die, now I am satisfied. There is this atoning sacrifice, and you will live. You are good to go. I want to look at a few more verses very quickly, and I'm going to read them. 
The first one is in Romans, and y'all write this down. I didn't put this on your sheet. This is Romans 3.25. And it says, I'm going to start in uh, 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The second verse I want y'all to write down is 1 John 4.10. And this says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And just really quick clarification. I'm, I'm going back and forth between the word propitiation and atonement. So propitiation, in other words, means to satisfy, or because of this act, I'm satisfied with you. An atonement, an atoning sacrifice, is to take the penalty of someone else onto yourself. And so we see this similar picture created with both words, which is why I might go back and forth between the two of them. But all in all, and to this day, Passover is celebrated by the Jews. The Passover feast is on the calendar, and it is this remembrance that they continue to celebrate to this day. There's so much in the Passover that we can dissect and we can study other parts that point to Christ. But overall, when we look at the Passover, we want to look at how Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He is our atonement. And everything about the Passover points forward to Jesus Christ as our sacrificial lamb. So as we move forward, Joey's going to continue and uh, bring up another familiar face in the text named Moses. Can y'all hear me? Is this on? Perfect. Um, when I think about Moses, I think about myself, to be honest, uh, not because I was raised up and I was a great leader, <laughs> um, but like, I just always struggle with words, I swear. Uh, I think, well, you're doing pretty good right now. Well, it's because I've already given this talk like four times before I gave it to you guys. Um, but thinking about Moses, just to give a little background, Moses was a man who was not great with words. Um, he was born as a Hebrew. He was actually raised by Egyptians. Uh, even more ironically, raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And so he lives in Egypt for 40 years. And so he's, he's familiar with what goes on in Egypt. And so he, he is a very significant person in this, uh, in this entire spectrum of the Old Testament because I don't know if you know this, but the Pentateuch, which is just the first five books of our Bible, were all five written by Moses. And so it's cool to look at. Even Moses writes about himself, which is awesome. But Moses is such a crucial point in history because when we look at Moses, we look at the Israelites and Hebrew nation as enslaved, and then they go from enslaved to the delivered. And so for Moses, God chose Moses to raise up himself as a leader to deliver his people. And so just to give you context of where we are right now, the Israelites have been enslaved for 400 years. 400 years. They've been under bondage. They've been in slavery. I mean, I can't imagine what kind of punishment and cruelty was involved within that. But regardless of what it was, we're looking at 400 years of enslavement. 
And for me, that, that just astounds me because what's about to happen during the Exodus is monumental in regards to our faith. If this doesn't happen, if Moses isn't raised up, then we don't know what freedom is. We don't know what true deliverance is. And so just to give you context, we're sitting at Exodus 12. So basically, Carrie just talked about the Passover. And at the end of uh, the 10 plagues, looking at Exodus 12, going into 13, and then hitting 14, we see the progression of Passover, the people leaving, and then we see the, the mass exodus. And so what this looks like is that Moses has gone, he's been called by God in Exodus 3, he's been called by God to go and deliver God's people. And so why is this important? Because if, if there's no deliverer, then God's people stay there for maybe another 400 years. They die under the, the bondage of the Egyptians. And so we're sitting at Exodus 12. The 10 plagues have just happened. And uh, Moses has gone to Pharaoh multiple times and said, hey, God's telling me, we got to let these people go. I'm going to lead these people out. You have got to let these people go. And every time... Pharaoh's heart is hardened and it's, hey, no, like, why would I give, why would I give away all these people who work for me and let them free? Like, I'm, I'm at a great loss. And so over and over again, Moses goes back to Pharaoh, goes back, goes back, goes back. And every time Pharaoh says, no, not a chance until we get to Exodus 12, verse 31. And Pharaoh, he's just had enough at this point. He's like, okay, these, these nine plagues were, were pretty tough. But on top of that, the Passover happened and I lost my firstborn. And so in the middle of the night, uh, Pharaoh says, then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel and go worship the Lord as you have said. Um, I have another side note. He, he says, go and worship. And he says, hey, take your people, get away from my people. Because what's happening is all the firstborn of Egypt just died, but none of the Hebrew kids are dead. Like, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm not going to allow this death to continue to incur within my people. And so whatever it is you're going to do, if you need to go worship your Lord, get out of here. But be, be, depart from us because we don't want to have any affiliation with you at this point. Because what's happening is just destruction. Like our, our country's going down the pipe really quick. The sign that I have is verse 32. It says, take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said and go and bless me also. And for me, I look at, <laughs> at Pharaoh and I'm like, please bless me by getting the heck out of here. Like, I want nothing to do with you. And so to set up that context, they're out. We're headed out of here. So we're at Exodus 14 and the people are gone. And if I'm, if I'm with Moses, my dad always told me, he said, you ain't gotta be the fastest one if there's an attack, but you dang sure can't be the last. So if you're in the middle of the pack, you're good to go. So I'm running with Moses. I'm on that train and I'm going as fast as I can because I'm thinking, hey, 400 years, my ancestors were there. I've been here. I'm out of here. Like there's no way I'm looking back. I refuse to look back and be under, under Pharaoh's bondage any longer. And so we're in this, this moment where the people are moving through the land. They're headed towards the promised land that God has, we've already talked about with Abraham and Isaac. This promised land is, is for his people. And so they're headed out. Well, Pharaoh's heart becomes hardened again. He says, what have I done? I'm going back to get these people. So he says, hey, rally up the troops. We're going. We're going to go get our people back. Keep in mind, this is a mass exodus. Like we're talking thousands of people are moving across the land at one time. 
And Mo- Moses, being the stutterer that he is, is up front and, and rallying the troops, saying, we're gone. Our time is here. And so I think about this because I, I, like, to, I like to stay in shape, but what's about to come in front of these people is something that no physical fitness training can ever prepare you for. They come to the edge of the Red Sea, and I'm thinking to myself, if I'm in the crew, I'm going, where are we going? Because I'm for sure not swimming across this. Like, I will drown or I'll be killed by the army. Like, there's no other option. Like, we have got to go somewhere. Well, in this moment, there's no other option except for God to show up in a monumental and miraculous way. And so behind them, they have thousands of people in Pharaoh's army pursuing them. Before them appears to be imminent death. Because if we go into the water, we're going to die for sure. But if we stay here, we're going to die too. So what's going to happen? Well, in that moment, Moses raises his staff and the waters part. So what, what we see here is, is a, an option only to go forward straight into freedom. And so the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, at this point, they're like, well, this is where we're going. Does it mean we're going to be completely free? They don't know yet. But what happens is they pass into the dry part of the sea and go to the other side. And in that moment, the waters come back onto Pharaoh's army and slavery is no longer an option. So what we see here is absolute deliverance. So when we're talking about pointing to Christ, we see as Moses delivers his people through the dry part of the sea and the water crashes onto Pharaoh's army, there is no longer an option for Pharaoh to have them in bondage. There's no longer an option for the people to be enslaved like they were for the previous 400 years. So in the same way, when Christ intercedes on our behalf and hangs on the cross, he removes our sin and says, no longer be subject to this yoke of slavery of sin. You are free. I came to set you free so that you could be free indeed. We see that in Galatians 5.1. He came so that our freedom is the only option. That slavery is no longer an option. So when we look at Big Mo, Moses, he has done the job. And when we look at Christ, it is finished. What he has done is completed the work that we all needed, that we were desperate to have. We were going to be slaves to sin for eternity if Christ doesn't intercede on our behalf. So look at this, at Romans 6.23, I feel like most people know this, but if you don't, it simply says, for the wages of sin is death. When we're standing at the Red Sea, the water's before us, there's death in front of us, death behind us, we use the term, it's imminent death. There's no other option but for us to die here. But what God does, and he says, I'm going to take out the option of death, because that seems to be the only thing that's in front of you, and I'm going to distinguish it. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to utterly dissipate this option completely. But what I'm going to give you is my son to deliver you into absolute freedom. And people always talk about, I don't understand what freedom feels like. Well, it's because we still allow ourselves to be enslaved to the things that we formerly walked in. But to, to walk in absolute freedom means that we no longer look back at Pharaoh's army and say the sin and the death is crouching behind me. But we look forward and we say there's dry, wa- there's dry land, there's no water. I walk through, Christ closes the water on the death and the sin that is behind me and I'm free. So to look at Moses as a type of Christ, we see him as a deliverer. He is one who brings us absolute freedom to the Hebrew people. They are no longer subject again 
to the yoke of slavery. Just want to read this. This is so beautiful. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says this. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he being Christ himself likewise also partook of the same, that through the death, through his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And might free those through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So what Christ does is he becomes like us, is in the flesh, and through his death, in his resurrection, he dies on the cross, goes into the grave, and then removes the stone and is lifted through that, that we might be free. So Moses delivers the Hebrew people. Christ delivers all mankind for those who believe in Christ Jesus. So we no longer are subject again to the yoke of slavery. So as you think about what we've covered so far, first, Christ is our substitutionary sacrifice. How unbelievable. Then secondly, he atones for everything that we've done. He's a propitiation of our sins. He paid that penalty. And then we get to look at how beautiful of a picture it is that he delivers us from all that used to be around us. He delivers us from the chains and the binding, whatever the the ropes, the entanglement of sin that used to be on us and says, hey, walk in a new life. You're headed to the promised land of eternity and not just this promised land that we see in, in modern day Israel. And so for us today, we get to rejoice in the fact that Jesus is our deliverer. We get to rejoice that in the same way that Moses, he leads the Hebrew people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, Christ leads us out of sin and into eternal life of freedom with him in the heavenly places with those who sit at the right hand of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to transition again and we're going to get to see even more beautiful picture of who Jesus is as our healer. So I'm going to bring Carrie back up here. Just a side note, um, looking back on your handout on your Passover, there's a great passage from Romans that really has nothing to do with Passover, but it's a great passage from Romans on your handout and you should read it anyways. Um, So just want to make you all aware of that. And if at any time, I mean, we're going to be mentioning verses right and left. We have got a few on the screen that we may or may not mention. I just encourage you just write them down because there's so many connections between the Old and the New Testament that we just don't have time to cover them all. Um, So anyways, moving forward, this story that I'm about to share with you all is probably one of my new favorites in the Old Testament. To be completely honest, this story was not a familiar one to me before just a few months ago, but it has quickly become one of my favorites. So before we look at the story, I want to set the scene for you. The Israelites are now in this period of wandering. So they've been in the wilderness. They've had highs and lows. There's times where they've trusted the Lord and his provision for food and water. And then there's times where they grumble and complain and they get punished for it. And so they've come to this place um, where the Edomites are living. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Edomites, they were not a good group of people. They were very bad people. These are the people referenced in Obadiah when the prophet is just coming down hard on them. 
And um, they live in this place known as modern-day Petra to us. How many of you are familiar with Petra? A few of you? Okay, just write it down so that you can look up later. And so the Edomites, being the big bad people that they are, basically tell the Israelites, hey, uh, we don't want you going through our land. You're going to have to go around. And if you try to come through our land, we will fight you. And so the Israelites now are set on a path to go the long route around the Edomites' land. So knowing this, and knowing that they've been wandering in the wilderness, they're sent back into the wilderness for more wandering, we can understand why they're a little testy and why they're complaining. They're back out on the rocks and the dirt and the dust, and they're tired and they're hot, and it's not fun. And so we see the story in Numbers 21 um, about this bronze serpent. And so what happens here is the people are complaining. They're unhappy. They mention these complaints to the Lord before Moses. They're not shutting up. And so basically God, in his sovereignty, executes judgment. And this time his form of judgment is, is snakes. So he sends snakes into their camps And the people get bitten by the snakes, and they start to die. It's terrifying, in my opinion. And the people quickly, quickly, quickly realize, oh, man, we screwed up. Once again, we came out, spoke out against our God that's been super faithful to us, and we've messed up, so what are we going to do? So they confess, hey, we messed up, and they're crying out for help. They're crying out to Moses. They're crying out to God. They're like, okay, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. Please get these snakes out of here. And so God's command to Moses is, hey, Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to form a serpent out of copper or this bronze material, and I want you to put it on a pole. And anyone that is bitten, you can look at that snake on a pole, and they're healed, and they will live. And it's this moment where you're like, okay, Carrie, what on earth do snakes and people dying have to do with pointing to Jesus Christ? But this is the most incredible part. Turn to John 3, and we're going to look at one of the most popular passages in Christianity. John 3, not 16. We're going to start in John 3, 14. And it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We're not even to John 3.16 yet, and we're starting to feel the weight of this connection here. You see, the people in Numbers, the people in the wilderness during the story in the Old Testament, they were bit, and they had poison. They had this poison running through their bodies. They were destined to die. There was no healing. There was no doctors. There was no hope for them. But then God provides this way. He says, look at this object that I've had Moses form, and when you look at it, you'll be healed. Y'all, just as these people were poisoned by these snakes in the wilderness, we all have this poison in us. We are human. We are born with a sinful poison that runs through our bodies that destines us to die. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
You see, God's provided Jesus Christ on the cross and says, if you look towards him, if you look towards Jesus, your savior, you will be healed. You'll be healed eternally. So just as the people were healed from the poison from a snake, we can be healed from the poison of our sin eternally. Something incredibly unique about this story is how applicable it is today. See, this image on the screen here, some of you might think, oh, that actually looks really familiar. This image you will find on lots of ambulances, hospital, you know, signs, all kinds of stuff. It is a very well-known medical symbol to this day. And we understand why. Because this is a passage of ultimate healing, In numbers, when it's happening, they're healed from a certain symptom, snake poison. When we see the New Testament connection with Jesus Christ, we quickly realize, hey, this is more than just a snake poison. This is the poison of sin, and we have a way out to be healed completely. And our completion of healing might come in our eternity when we're with God in heaven. But the realization is, is that we have the hope of healing. And that we know that we can be purified and that we can live eternally with our God. And so this is just one of my favorite passages because I love, I love how uncomfortable it is. I love God's grace and mercy people point to regarding um, his, his grace to provide the manna for the people. Earlier in this passage of Numbers, they're saying, hey, you don't, we don't have food, we don't have water, and we don't like this special food that you've given us. Now, special food is referencing the manna. We saw God's provision with the manna, and then this provision with a a snake sculpture, and those are the things that are going to demonstrate God's goodness. It just seems so odd and uncomfortable to me that he would use bread and a snake to demonstrate what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The provision of Jesus Christ on the cross and the healing factor of Jesus Christ on the cross. So it's one of my favorite stories. We clearly see um, this connection to Christ being our ultimate healer. Um, Joey, do you want to take a, keep going or take a break now? We have one more uh, that we want to go through and then we're going to take a quick break after that. I promise God will deliver you to the bathroom soon. I know that y'all are, <laughs> it worked, it worked. Um, the, last, the last one that we want to look at before we move into to the break and into another exercise is just the man of Joshua. Um, as we look at Joshua, we're going to see, if you ask me, I think God's just going, hey, I, I've done a lot, but now I'm about to show off. I'm about, to, I'm about to show you, like, if you thought that was something, now watch me do this. Um, as we look at Joshua, I mean, we're simply just going to look at him as a conqueror. We're going to look at who Jesus is as a conqueror and how Josh displays himself as a type, as a conqueror in, in this time. Um, 
Something that's cool is, is Joshua's a successor to Moses. Uh, Moses had been, had been training up Joshua to take over when, when Moses got done, basically when he died. Um, at this point, Moses is dead. He, he couldn't enter into the promised land. He, he's being penalized because of his stupidity and his anger in striking the rock. So God says, hey, you're not going to go in, but Joshua will take my people. And so up to this point, Joshua has been being prepared and being raised up to lead the people into the promised land. And so something that's cool about his name, if you don't know this, uh, I, I'm going to give it to you. I'm from Alabama, remember that? Yeshua actually means the Lord is salvation. So it's cool that we have a man who's displayed as a conqueror, who's leading God's people into the promised land, and his, and his name means the Lord is salvation. Like for me, I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I could follow you. If your name means the Lord is salvation, I'll follow you into the promised land. Like, this is awesome. But it's not just that his name is cool, but God is prepared to show the Israelites, look how mighty and exalted I am as you take over this land. So as Joshua prepares to go in, we look at Joshua 1. Specifically, I want to look at verses 3 and 5. Because right now, it is so obvious that God has prepared Joshua to take over the land of Canaan and to take over the the Canaanite armies. There's no doubt that that God is about to do his thing right here. If you look at verse 3, it says, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you. Just as I spoke to Moses. So every place that Joshua is about to enter into, God has already gone before him. He's given this people into his hands and and there's nothing that will prevent him from doing so. When we look at verse five, it says, no man, not some men will be able to, or there'll be a few that won't, but no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. And most importantly, I will not fail you or forsake you. So God's seriously, he's going, Hey, you're here and it's about to happen. We're going in and nothing's going to stop us. You go because I've already been before you. I've prepared for them to be taken over by you. You just have to show up. You have to go. And Joshua is going to be one of the most incredible biblical military leaders that we will ever see. And I mean, there's a couple, a couple of semantics. So we, uh, the, the sin of Achan, which leads him into the, the loss at the battle of Ai, that, that in and of itself is in an entirely different camp. But every other battle that Joshua enters into is literally the people are given into his hands. And so God says, hey, no man will stand before you all the days of your life. I'm already there. And so if we look at Joshua 6, this is what some would say the most notable passage and victory is for Joshua. It's the battle at Jericho. And so just leading up to verses 20 and 21 is God saying, hey, you will go to the city, you will march around the city, and then I will literally, I will destroy the city. So you just have to show up. You do as I say. Don't shout before the time, don't blow the trumpets before the time, and don't enter before the time, but wait until I give the city to you. And so to set that up, we go through 20 or 19 verses of God saying, hey, it's about to go down, get ready to go in. So looking at verse 20, it says, so the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets and the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city and every man straight ahead and they took the city. And to add a point of emphasis, 
they utterly destroyed everything in the city. So not only do the walls fall, but then they, want, they run in headlong and take everything. Every man and woman, young and old, bull and goat, they take it all and utterly destroy the city. And so we look at this and we look at our lives and we look at the battle against sin and death and we say, God has destroyed everything that used to take power over you. What used to inhabit your body, the sin and the death that reigned in your mortal bodies is completely taken care of by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we see Christ as our ultimate conqueror. So it's amazing to look at him as a healer. It's amazing to look at him as a, uh, a deliverer. It's amazing to look at the propitiation of sins that he is. And amazing to look at the substitutionary sacrifice that he was. But even more so, we are conquering sin and death through the work of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Joshua, we see him run into the city. We see his armies inhabit the city, having utterly destroyed everything in it. In the same way that Christ infiltrates our life and destroys all sin within it by the work of his death on the cross. And so we as a people get to rejoice and say, Jesus, your work is magnificent. You as a conqueror are like nothing we've ever seen before. And, and I, I think that when I read 1 Corinthians 15, like it makes me feel good. And it makes me go, oh man, like... My sin, it no longer has sting. But let's read it this way. Oh, death, where's your victory? Hey, Jericho, where's your victory? Where, where do you stand at this point? Oh, death, where's your sting? Hey, how, how, how powerful are you now? Then he goes on, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. He is saying here, hey, my victory is that you have life and you have it abundantly. That's John 10, 10. You know, the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come so that you may have life. And I'm going to do it by hanging on the cross as far as the east is from the west. So far, I will remove your sins. I'm going to hang on the cross and I'm going to conquer sin and death because I'm going to go into the grave and I'm going to raise up and death will no longer have power over you. And so Joshua, he's leading the people into the promised land. And all these, these, uh, these people groups within the land of Canaan, the, the different Canaanites that are there are saying, hey, this is our land. And Joshua's going, no, 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 this is God's land. We're coming in and you're gone. So in the same way, Jesus comes into our lives. He's crucified on the cross so that we could have absolute free life where sin and death no longer reign in our mortal bodies. And so for us, we get to rejoice in that. Joshua points to who Christ is going to be on the cross as a conqueror. And even more so when we look at, I believe it's Romans 8.37, that we are overwhelmingly more than conquerors because of the person of Jesus Christ. Just looking at this book just amazes me. I mean, the different things that happen within the book of Joshua, it absolutely astounds me. I mean, the sun stands still, the walls of Jericho, they, they, they fall. They fall flat. But something I want to give you, this is just a, a cool, um, it's not an illustration, it, it's, it's in the text. If you look at Joshua 3, just look at this with me for a second. So here is the, the Sea of G, Sea of Galilee, all the G's stay there. Um, coming down, this is the Jordan River. And then here 
It's the Dead Sea. In Joshua 3, they will cross the Jordan River. The, the, the Hebrew people will move into the Promised Land. So here is a city named Adam. The, the Hebrew people will cross here, coming from Egypt, and they will go across. I want you to look at this with me. This is not, first of all, when we talk about types, this is not the explicit, implicit, like, oh my goodness, this is exactly how that Christ worked on the cross. But I want you to look at something. Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. And now sin, Romans 6.23, leads to death. That says Romans. Uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So they take the ark the priests, their feet hit the water and the water stops completely. The waters no longer flow from Adam into death. And so this is not the, the text going, hey, look at how God works in a mighty way that through one man sin entered the world, but rather look at geographically how God, I think in a way, just shows off and says, hey, from the city of Adam flow the waters into death. But when the Ark of the Covenant passes through the waters, the waters stop and they can no longer reach death. So we'll walk through the Ark of the Covenant in a minute. Just it represents the presence of God. So Christ, being on the cross, says, hey, here is sin and death, but I'm going to intervene and you will no longer go here. But because I've removed your sins so far as the east is from the west, you will have life. Now that in the text is not like, look at the gospel, this is awesome. But God's word is so cool that the intimate and small details of, hey, the waters from Adam to the Dead Sea stop flowing because the Ark of the Covenant is in the way. So in the same way that our sin leads us to death, God intervenes in his presence and his magnificent glory to say, my son died so that your life would no longer go into death, but that it would be with me. And so that's just a side note, just to, to paint a sweet little picture of, of what God does in each of our lives. And so just remembering like Joshua is a conqueror and there's cool things like this that show up throughout scripture all the time. But in this moment, remember Joshua was a conqueror who points us to the complete and finished and overwhelmingly powerful work of Christ on the cross. And so in light of the Old Testament, we're going to go through the tabernacle in a few minutes, but in light of the Old Testament, these are only five examples of how many different things point to who Christ is. Five. We literally have 39 books to go through of how many things point to who Jesus is and who he is to come as he's manifested in the New Testament. He's here. And so think about it. We've already looked. He's our substitutionary sacrifice. He's our atonement. He heals us. He delivers us. And through him, we have conquered sin and death. And so as we continue to look at the text... I mean, as we take a break, take a moment to take in what we've just looked at. This is Jesus. Why does this matter? Jesus. Why does the Old Testament matter? Why is it relevant? Because it all points to Jesus. And so as we look at the tabernacle in a few minutes, just be reminded of how good God is and everything that we have seen in the Old Testament has a purpose. 
Let me pray for us and we'll take a break. God, thank you so much. We thank you for the Old Testament and the New Testament. We thank you how, for just how you reveal yourself, how you show us who you are as faithful and mighty and true and loving and merciful. Lord, we are so incredibly grateful just to get to study your word and get to see how you move in a mighty way. We're, we're so grateful to get to, to try and understand how much you love us. But Lord, we are so grateful that you just demonstrate your love for us and that your son died so that we could have life. Um, Lord, I pray just for the rest of our time that you continue to bless us and encourage us through your word. Um, Lord, it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Um, it's 2.05. Could we be back here at 2.20? Is that long enough or too long? 2.20 it is by unanimous decision. <laughs> I'll see you when I'm looking at you. All righty, we're going to get started. So go ahead and, well, most of you are seated. We're going to let a few more people trickle back in real quick, and then we're going to jump on in. Um, all right, so we're going to move into some actual group exercise. But before we do, I want to give you a little background on the tabernacle. The tabernacle is something that we've all probably heard of, at least I hope you've heard of it. And if you haven't, we'll talk later. But um, this is a very pivotal part um, of the Old Testament and really even our faith. And a lot of us just don't know a whole lot about it. And y'all, we I can't count the number of hours that Joey and I have spent studying this material these last few months. And I still feel like there's thousands and thousands of pages of information that I can know about the tabernacle and everything surrounding it. So we're going to do just a just huge bird's eye view of the tabernacle and what it is and what the items in it mean. And so when the tabernacle, uh, when God is ready for this to be built, he gives the instruction to Moses. Moses has just come down from the mountain of being in the presence of God. And God is at this point uh, where he wants to dwell among the people. So if you turn to Exodus 25... Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And so God wants to be in the presence of his people. And not only does he want to be in their presence, but he is going to instruct them to build this tabernacle that's portable. So not only does he want to be with them, but he wants to move with them. And so he's created this opportunity for the people. And we will look forward to the New Testament when God's presence as believers dwells inside of us. And so we do become this moving temple, this moving tabernacle of God. However, the Holy Spirit has not yet come in the same manner for the people of the Old Testament. So God instructs them to build this tabernacle. And something that's very unique about this tabernacle is the detail that God gives on building it. 
He is incredibly and meticulously specific with the details of how he wants this place built. From the colors, the designs, the height, the width, the depth, the fabrics used, all the materials. He's so specific. And people have spent years and years and years trying to understand what each of those little details mean. And the truth is, there are, in fact, despite all the details given in Scripture, there's many details that are actually left out. And scholars have questioned, okay, there is some missing information according to the Bible, so what's going on here? He gives so much detail and then still leaves some out. But what's unique is that God provides just enough detail for the fundamental significance to be seen. And so the detail he does give us is the stuff that he wants us to be aware of, to point to him, to point to Christ, to make his name known. And so this is just a a quick image to give you an overall view. And y'all, you will find diagrams upon diagrams of the tabernacle and what it looks like. This is a really great um, image to look at it gives you even just the size in relationship to an American football field, so you kind of have an idea of it. Have Have any of you ever been to Israel? Just me and Joy. Awesome. Oh, oh, one. So there are, um, particularly in Israel, there is a life size model of a tabernacle that you can walk through and just get this perspective. It's really unique. It's a great experience just to get the size, the dimensions, just to see what it might be like to walk through this place. And so what we're going to do now is I'm going to assign you by tables. And what we're going to do is I need these two tables up front. Y'all are going to be one table. Y'all are going to work together. So I'm going to give you as a table an item in the tabernacle. And what I want you to do... These are the six items. What I want you to do is I want you to look at the Old Testament passage and the New Testament passage that we've given you, and I want you to figure out how it points to Christ. So, for instance, these two tables up here, you all are going to have the the, um, altar of burnt offering. That's going to be your item, okay? This table over here on my right, you all are going to do the laver, the bronze laver, uh, my y'all, yeah, my table. Um, y'all are gonna do the lampstand. This table over here, you're gonna do the table of showbread. Kim's table in the back. You are gonna do the altar of incense. In that back corner, you are doing the Ark of the Covenant slash mercy seat. If you feel overwhelmed, that's okay. It's a great one. And if you have any questions at any time, we'll be here to help you. We'll walk around if you're confused. But as a table, I want you to discuss and figure out how that item points to Christ. Anyone confused? All right. We're going to give you maybe 15 minutes to work on this. Before we start letting you all share, I just want to make one more point regarding the tabernacle and God's design with it. Um, I just find it so unique that everything about it points to our relationship with Christ. And so in God's design of the tabernacle, his intention was to show the people how to have a relationship with him. 
So he was almost teaching them by placing certain furniture, certain items. Each of them represent part of our relationship with Christ. And so I find that so unique that even in the Old Testament, he's preparing his people to be in relationship not only with himself, but with his son that he's going to send many years later. So we're just going to jump right in with the altar of burnt offering. Um, like I said, this these pictures are taken from a model in Israel, a life-size model. So as far as we know, these sizes are fairly accurate. Now, humans have error and everyone often interprets things differently, but this is pretty accurate on sizing. And so just just practically speaking, the altar would have this ramp so they can access it to put the animal on the altar because this, if I was standing up next to it, my head might come close to here. So they would have this ramp to then put the animal on it. And in this altar, there's this metal grate that they would set the animal on and underneath it was hollowed out and that's where they would put the fire. They would also um, pour the blood as over these horns on the corners, fun fact, so anyways, this is kind of what an altar might look like. Um, obviously, we weren't there, so we don't know. But this just gives you an idea and of the placement of it in relationship to the rest of the tabernacle. So who had altar? This group right here. All right, I would love for you all to share what you learned about the altar and how it points to our relationship with Christ. Yeah, Sure. Absolutely. So just in short, he shared that this is the first item you come to when you're in the court. And with the altar, that is where the sacrifice would occur. The blood of the animal would be poured out and spilled out. And so he's saying just in our relationship to Christ, Christ being our sacrifice, the blood of the lamb that we talked about earlier, as seen in the substitutionary sacrifice with um, Abraham and Isaac and how the ram was provided. And then with Passover, how he says, take a lamb and sacrifice it. And fast forward to Jesus Christ, our sacrificial lamb. And so the altar points to that sacrifice. Well done. Good job. Does anyone have questions on the altar? Awesome. Moving on. We're going to go to the laver. And you can see the laver in this picture. It's what we come to next. So this is the bronze or copper laver. Who had that? Yeah. Awesome. So he just said the water here that they would use to wash um, 
symbolizes the blood of Jesus that makes us clean. That is a great point to make. A lot of people miss that point. So if we look at the Jewish tradition, God told the people that they had to purify themselves. And so after the sacrifice on the altar, they had to go through a purification process to be cleansed because of that dead animal. And so this is the moment of cleansing before they enter the, um, the holy place. And so he's saying, just as the blood of Christ purifies us, this water purifies us the same. That's a great point. Well done. All right, let's keep moving to the holy place. Lampstand. Who had the lampstand? Okay, awesome. Middle table. Sure, give them to me. Those are all great observations. So there's a lot of speculation. So she talked about the making of the lampstand and all of these specific parts of it and how they might relate and symbolize something else. There's a lot of speculation regarding the lampstand and all the the details on how to make it and what they mean and what they stand for. I'm going to broaden our view of the lampstand out a little bit more and give you one word, illumination. So we see in John... He said, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. And if we look back to Genesis, what is the very first thing that God says? Anyone? Let there be light. And then we see in the beginning of the Gospels, here Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And so when we see this lampstand, we see Jesus Christ as the light of the world and as our illumination. Yes, that applies in many other ways and how we are to be lights as believers and to shine in the darkness. There's many ways you can take this, but I want you to cling to Jesus Christ as the light of the world, and he is our illumination that that fights out and cuts through the darkness. Awesome. Well done, team. Let's move on to the next item, which is a table of showbread. Who had this one? All right.
Well done. So he said a few things. He mentioned the 12 tribes of Israel, which is why you often see 12 loaves there. We also remember stories in the Old Testament um, about how God provided manna. So he provided the sustenance for his people. And um, looking forward, he mentioned that Jesus Christ himself says, I am the bread of life. And so if we want to use a big fancy word, we're going to say this table of showbread represents our spiritual sustenance. It's what sustains us. However, it's also good to tag on here that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He is our sustenance. He is our strength. He is our daily provision. Well done. Y'all did a great job. Let's keep going. Altar of incense. Who had this one? Middle back? All right, let's hear from you. Well done. Awesome. This one's pretty simple. They would light this incense um, when they would pray and allow it to rise, just as the the smell would rise, just as our prayers would rise to God. And so this represents, the bigger word, um, our supplication, or yes, just our prayer life, our our, um, mediation with the Lord. And we know that Christ is our mediator. And so Christ is the one through which we have our supplication, through which we, we pray through to our Father. Uh, well done, group. That one is pretty straightforward. Moving on up. We're going to the big one. The Ark of the Covenant slash the Mercy Seat. Now, some people like to separate these two. However, since they are on one object... Uh, we decided just to combine them. But some people like to separate them as different items. That's for another day. So, final table. What did you learn? Yeah, well done. So the ark, um, in just in summary of what he shared, the ark is our access to God slash the presence of God. And so they would carry the ark with them. Remember when they crossed the Jordan, they stood in the waters with the ark, with the presence of God, and the waters parted. And so this was their access, of God, access to God and the presence of God. And yes, it's in the Holy of Holies, the most holy part of the tabernacle that not all people could go in. And you mentioned the mercy seat and the atonement. And this, 
this is where blood would be poured on the mercy seat. So this is the mercy seat right here, this flat area between the two cherubim. And they would pour the blood out there as a symbol of the atonement, that sacrifice, propitiation, just like we talked about earlier. And so the people would receive the mercy because of that atoning blood poured out in the presence of God. And just a side note, so you see that this is kind of open here. So in case you did not know, they also kept the two tablets, the Ten Commandments, inside the ark, as well as manna and Aaron's budding staff. So if you don't know anything about Aaron's budding staff, that's a great thing for you to go study this week in your quiet time. And then manna and the Ten Commandments, all very important parts of the Israelites' journey with their relationship with the Lord as he moves into presence with them. And so we see these items of the tabernacle, and these are just the main items that we see within the tabernacle. Like I said earlier, there's many other parts. There's colors, there's materials, there's design, all very specifically given by God. But we see with these items, this progression in our relationship with him, because we see that we start our relationship with the Lord because of his sacrifice. He is our sacrificial lamb. He is the one that paid that penalty. And because of that, we are cleansed by his blood. We are purified because of that sacrifice. So we can now enter in to the presence, the holy presence of him. And we take part in his illumination as the light of the world. And we take part in being the light of the world when we become a part of the body of Christ. And then we see that he is our sustenance. He sustains us. He is a strength. He is the bread of life. And then we move further into the holy of holies after praying. <laughs> we, we can pray through Jesus Christ and we enter into the presence of God. We have that access to him as believers. And so all these items point us to our relationship with Christ and um, are a huge reminder and a huge symbol of how we work in that relationship. And so um, I think that's all I had on the tabernacle. Just something to note, there are many, many other parts, including the purpose of the cherubim. There's so many parts that if you're curious, I challenge you to go study the other parts of the tabernacle because you could spend hours just on the Ark of the Covenant itself. So if you're looking for something to study, look up tabernacle and just pound away at that. Okay. Um, for me, I feel like this is a perfect transition, just what it looks like to look at us today. Um, and this will be the last thing that, that we give you guys. The tabernacle is so beautiful because in reality, that's who we are today. Like we are God's people and the Holy Spirit dwells within each of us. The fact that that all of these things were, were set in place because they, they were to represent who God was and our access to God and what, what the, the tabernacle was supposed to be in those times. But now that Jesus has come and we've been given the Holy Spirit, we've been given the helper, we ourselves, based off of 1 Corinthians six eighteen through 20, we are now 
the temple of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Spirit dwells within us. And so for us, we get to rejoice. Literally everything that we've looked at so far, including the tabernacle, points to Christ and what he did on the work of the cross to come back to us. And so that doesn't make the Bible about us by any means, but everything that occurs in the Bible is something that benefits and prolongs our life because we now have eternal life. And so thinking about this, when we look at the Old Testament, we see, we see two things. We see one, we see a need, and we see a hope. And what I'm talking about about a need is not just this need of like, uh, think about this. I need gas in my car in order to go. In order to get somewhere in my vehicle, I need to put gas or I need to put diesel in there in order for the motor to run. Without gasoline, I can't do anything. Or without diesel, I can't go anywhere. Well, to take it even further, that's, that to me is a basic need. Like I need to eat every day. But for me, if, if I break my leg, if, if my leg is completely broken and I, I have a, <laughs> to make it as gruesome as possible, if I have a compound fracture and I have blood coming out of my leg, I have a desperate need. I don't necessarily need the gas because I have two legs to go somewhere. But if I have a broken leg and I have the blood that comes from my leg and my bone is no longer together how it was created to be used, then I have a desperate need for help. And so what I need, I need a doctor, a physician, or a nurse to come in and help me stop the bleeding, more than likely have surgery, reset my bone, more than likely put a rod in it, and create healing to go on there. So what I have there is a desperate need and then a solution. And so when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the tabernacle, when we look at the Bible entirely, we see ourselves as a desperate, desperate need for Christ. We're sinful. And so when we look at the sacrificial system, my gosh, I, even in my time up here, my thoughts, my actions, how I care myself, in my pride, I would have already had to sacrifice who knows how many times. And just to paint a picture, I mean, there are so many different sins and sacrifices that they had to make in that time that there was incidental sins, unincidental sins. Like you had to sacrifice for anything. To me, I don't think there's enough bulls and goats in the world to take part in sacrificing for what, what we would have to do in light of uh, our sin. And uh, for me, a while back, I was part of a teaching team where we, we taught through the Sermon on the Mount and I absolutely loved it. But for me, the Sermon on the Mount did not have as much gravity to it, even though Christ was teaching the greatest sermon ever given, until I had read through literally Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Because when you get to Matthew 5, 17, out of I think it's 109 verses in the Sermon on the Mount, 17 verses in, Jesus says one profound thing. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but I came to fulfill And so when we think about the entire Old Testament, we think about what Christ fulfilled. He didn't destroy it. He didn't abolish it. He hung on the cross and died the perfect death as an unblemished lamb so that the law that we could never fill could never fill. We see that in, what is it, Romans 8, 9, and 10, and then also in Hebrews 9 and 10. What the law was weak in the flesh and it could not do, Christ did in his death and resurrection. 
So we get to see, I did not come to abolish it, nor that of the prophets, but I came to fulfill it. And so our desperate need is taken completely care of by the work of Christ. And so when we look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is so relevant because if the Old Testament wasn't there, we would have no appreciation for the New Testament. If, if Christ just comes on the scene and he's like, I, I die for your sins, then everybody, we would think he's a lunatic. Like, well, what do you mean sins? Like, we don't understand. Like, if you look at Galatians 3, like the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ because it shows us our depravity. It shows us our brokenness and the fact that we have to have a Savior. Not like, ah, oh, we, we could use a Savior, maybe like he could help us out. No, we absolutely have to have a Savior. And so as we look at this, look at, look at me with, uh, or look with me at Hebrews 10.4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That, that should carry so much weight in our life. The fact that there's nothing that we could do to obtain a removal of sins. Then also in Hebrews 9.14, just to put Hebrews 10.4 into perspective, how much more, how much greater, how much more abundantly will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish, going back to what Carrie talked about in the Passover, there's no blemish whatsoever in Christ. His blood would cleanse your conscience from the dead works that we now take part in to serve, pardon me, the living God. Like Isaiah 1.18, like, though your sins are as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Though they are crimson and red, I'll make them wool. I'll make them white as wool. And so what Christ has done, he says, hey, it's impossible for you to get there, but I'm here and through my blood, you now have a clear conscience to God. You are able to serve the living God. You have access, John 14, 6, you have access to God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, being Jesus Christ. We as a people have to understand and appreciate the Old Testament because it shows us who we are. It shows us who we are as a people in our desperate need for Christ. Even better than that, um, as you look throughout the Old Testament, I think that we see such a beautiful scream for hope. And I, I won't say that our, uh, the scream for hope, uh, it, it shadows or overshadows the, the need, because I think that the need, it, it promotes the hope, and the hope even says, hey, remember that the need that you have is there. And so I think about this, there's two verses that, that just destroy everything for me, like it wrecks my heart, and they're the butts of scripture, the but God, Ephesians 2, 4, and uh, Romans 5, 8. And so what Paul does in both of these verses, he says, but God, and so think about it, but God, what do you mean but? Well, before the but, there were all of these things, your sin, the law, your sacrifices, your, your waywardness, your naiveness, your destruction, the things that you thought you could do on your own, like we're looking at judges, the seven cycles of sin, like every man did what was right in his own eyes, all of that, what you led yourself into destruction with, led to this point, but God, Romans 5, 8, demonstrates his, his great love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Ephesians 2, 4, but God rich in his mercy with the great love which with he loved us, even while we are still dead in our transgressions, raises us up alive together with Christ. 
raises up with him, seats us with him in the heavenly places at the right hand of Christ Jesus. But God, because of all these things and his love for us, makes us alive with Christ. So the but gods are so crucial because we were this way, but God intervenes on our behalf so that we could have life. So to appreciate the New Testament, we look at what the Old Testament tells us. It tells us that we're broken. It tells us that we need God. And not just need, but we must be desperate for the cross. We must be desperate for the work of Christ. We must be desperate that he would come soon. You know, we could go into the semantics of what's going on in our country today. We should be desperate that Jesus would come back for the second time. Like, please come soon. (laughs) Like, do it already. We're ready for you. But we should be desperate every single day to return to the foot of the cross because when we wake up, we realize our depravity. We realize who we are. I mean, I'm reading in Proverbs 27 today, I think it's 27, uh, it's 27, 19 and 20. 19 says, as water, as in water face reflects face, so the heart of uh, man reflects man. So looking back at Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is exceedingly wicked. Like our hearts reflect who we truly are. Like go follow your heart. No, don't follow your heart because you're going to end up dead. You literally will end up dead. But if you let Christ, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 26, take the heart of stone, remove it, and put the heart of flesh in and instill in you a new spirit so that you will follow the statutes of God and his ordinances and walk by his spirit. Follow the heart of God and the will of God and let him lead you through life thinking even further in the beautiful picture of the gospel, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Christ being completely just in his nature and us being completely unjust in our sin, he died for us so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin, become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Going back, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is completely gone and behold, the new has come. This is our portrait of the Old Testament, which leads to the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We have been awaiting a savior. And when we look at typology, we look at the longing and the hope and the desire to see the Messiah. We look for Jesus and who he is and who God is revealing himself through the Old Testament to be in the New Testament. I mean, we get these questions about, well, how can God be in the flesh and be man? Well, I mean, it's it's Colossians 2.9, Hebrews 2.18 um, it goes again into Hebrews 4, but Colossians 2, 9, like the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. If Jesus had not dwelt in bodily form and sympathized with us in every single way as a high priest, that's Hebrews two eighteen, he would not have been able to pay the sacrifice and debt that we owe. But when we get to look at who he was in his flesh and the price that he paid and how the Old Testament points directly the Old Testament points directly to who Christ is we begin to appreciate so much more who God is in his character in his loving kindness in his faithfulness and his i mean just purely love for us and so today we went over five things and six including the tabernacle Christ is this he is our substitutionary sacrifice Christ is our atonement and propitiation for our sins. Christ is our deliverer. 
Christ is our healer and Christ is our conqueror. The entirety of scripture points to who Christ is in our life today. And so I hope, I hope, I hope that what we've been over today will really show you why everything matters in regards to the Old Testament. Why does typology matter? Why does the Old Testament law matter? Because it leads us to Christ. It leads us directly to the throne. It leads us to who he is as our Savior. And so in our time today, I know that we flew. Believe me, I know that we flew. But I encourage you that as you are going through Scripture, please, please, please read the Old Testament. Please read the Old Testament. Go back through the law. As boring as it's going to be, when you get through Leviticus, you will be so grateful for Christ. You have no idea. I'm just telling you. When you get through it, you will literally be so grateful because you go, I am never going to be able to do this. Never. But we have a new covenant. And so I hope that y'all are encouraged by this. I know that sometimes we, we look at these things and it's like, well, I can't really wrap my mind around that. But what you can wrap your mind around is the fact that God loves you and has an entirely perfect plan for your life. So when we look at the Old Testament, we look at an entirely sovereign plan that God had before Genesis 1 that will end in Revelation with Christ as our victor. He is our conqueror. That's where it ends. All the time, people are like, oh, I, don't, I don't know how to get these thoughts out of my head. Satan uses this to kill me with doubt. Remind Satan of what's, what's, what's ahead. The Old Testament points to the fact that we are victorious, completely victorious in Christ. And so if you walk away with anything today, if it's none of those five points, other than the fact that Jesus died so that you could have life, then our time here was well spent. But if you walk away with more, I'm, applaud you. That's great. You know, but we want you to be encouraged walking away going, you know, I do have a better appreciation for the Old Testament. And so we're glad that you hung out with us. I know we're a couple of young punks or I'm young punk. She's (laughs) probably better than me, but, um, would, if you have questions, don't be afraid to email us, ask us right now. Um, we're done a little early, um, so you're welcome for no free, free charge for getting out early. Um, but thanks for having us. Thanks for being with us, and y'all are honestly free to go. I would, uh, I would come, that's somewhat legible. If you weren't in one of these groups, write down the notes of what the groups put up there. Um, but let me pray for us, and then y'all are free to go. So God, thank you for today. Again, we just thank you for your son, um, that through him we have abundant life. Um, through him, our debt that we we owed um, that we could never pay was paid um, that we are justified through his death and resurrection, so Father, we just pray that, as we have learned today, um, that as you have taught us, that uh, we would have a greater longing and desire to dive into your word each and every day, um, that what you have taught us um, it 'll never return void um, that your word is is the absolute truth, and we get to rest in that and so we just praise you for the fact that we have the Old Testament and the New Testament preserved fully. Um, we just pray that you continue to teach us mightily every day and that we would have a a new and greater appreciation for you and your son each and every day that through the Holy Spirit that we would be convicted to draw nearer and nearer to you, Father. We thank you for your son again that he died so that we could have life it 's in your son 's special name we pray amen.